Good morning. Biden reinstates gun background checks. A Russian fighter takes down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. The meaning and fallout from a run on the banks. And the New York State Legislature is poised to ban gas from new homes. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday morning, March 15th, 2023. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Tuesday to ramp up enforcement of gun laws during a trip to Southern California. Biden spoke in Monterey Park, where a gunman killed 11 people in January during Lunar New Year festivities at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio. The executive order is modest, constrained by the Second Amendment and a powerful gun lobby. It's mostly about transparency and enforcement of existing laws and a call for Congress to do more. The executive order ramps up our efforts to hold the gun industry accountable. It's the only outfit you can't sue these days. It does that by calling out for an independent government study that analyzes and exposes how gun manufacturers aggressively market firearms to civilians, especially minors, including by using military imagery. And it directs the Attorney General to public release, publicly release alcohol, tobacco, and, fam- and firearms inspection reports of firearms dealers who are cited for violation of the law. The anti-gun message is expected to play a central role in Biden's re-election campaign. He's going after voters who believe the government should do more to limit gun violence, even as mass shootings continue. In world news, the Pentagon said on Tuesday the United States military was forced to crash an MQ-9 surveillance drone in the Black Sea after it was struck by a Russian jet. Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder. Two Russian Su-27 aircraft conducted unsafe and unprofessional unprofessional intercept uh, with a U.S. Air Force intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance unmanned MQ-9 aircraft that was operating within international airspace over the Black Sea today. Uh, To recap, at approximately 7.03 a.m. Central European time, one of the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9, causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters. Several times before the collision, the Su-27s dumped fuel on and flew in front of the MQ-9 in a reckless and unprofessional manner. This incident demonstrates a lack of competence in addition to being unsafe and unprofessional. Russian Ambassador Anatoly Antonov says Russia doesn't want confrontation between its country and the U.S. after he was summoned to the State Department following the downing of the drone. Antonov added, we prefer not to create a situation where we can face unintended clashes or unintended incidents between the Russian Federation and the United States. The incident is the first time Russian and United States military aircraft have come into direct physical contact since Russia launched its special military operation, its war against Ukraine. The associate director of the Eisenhower Media Network is Matthew Ho. He's also a retired officer from the United States Marine Corps with 12 years experience. He resigned in protest of U.S. escalation of the Afghanistan war. Ho says the incident in the Black Sea was dangerous and a possible prelude to wider conflict. How is the United States going to handle this issue with Russia? Right. And of course, we could, this could be the same with Iran. This could be the same with China, with whoever. Mm-hmm. It really is very concerning as to where they go here right. because we have this very recent evidence of how hysterical and unhinged U.S. military decision making can be. We can go through the list. I mean, weapons of mass destruction that weren't there, Gulf of Tonkin incident. In the last few years of the Afghan war, you had that Russian bounty story, right, that went around right, for right. quite a while. Yeah. 
until it was finally and concretely debunked by the Biden administration that they have no evidence of Russian bounties for American troops. I mean, that went for quite a while, that story, at least a year. And it was on the New York Times. It was on MSNBC. It was said with such certainty. And there were demands that the United States do something about it. demands from Congress, demands from MIA commentators, from retired generals, that the United States act on that. And so now you have this issue where, thankfully, it was a drone and no one was hurt. Sounds to me like this was not an incompetent pilot who uh, didn't just uh, have guts in doing that, but also knew what he was doing to force the aircraft or to force the drone down without destroying it, possibly. Isn't that a message? It could have also been an operation. You remember the yeah. uh, the Iranians brought down the, the drone, the United States drone, a number of years ago. Why are the Americans and some other nations hesitant in giving, like, our best weapons to the Ukrainians? Well, we don't want to lose them. We don't want the Russians to have access to our best stuff. There's talk about with the, why is it going to take... Why can't we just give the tanks we have now, the M1A2 Abrams tanks, to the Ukrainians? A lot of the reason is that Abrams has a very advanced application of armor on it that the Americans are very afraid that we can't lose this. Like, if we lose this, the Russians are going to know how we build our armor. We're going to build another Abrams tank for the Ukrainians that doesn't have the most advanced armor on it. It'll still be a good tank, but we're not giving away any of our best secrets that's the case why we've not given them more advanced drones why we're so afraid to give them f-16s and get shot down land in belarus land in russia control out ukraine land in russia and now they're going to have access to a lot of the technology our f-16s have that would have been a consideration for the russians with taking down this drone this idea of they, they may have been planning this for months the person at the Pentagon, they asked him if there was going to be a recovery of the drone, and he said no evidence that we're going to even try and recover it. Where it landed, how it landed, if it's recoverable, I would imagine the Russians, if this was an operation, could have been just some Russian version of Maverick, you know, like <laughs> yeah. some Top Russian gun. pilot who decided this on his own. Uh-huh. It's very possible it was just a, a lone pilot who did this. It's possible that at the squadron level, his squadron commander said, knock that thing out of the sky when they ran across it. Or it was a planned operation that the Russian Air Force has been wanting to get their hands on one of these things, and this is how we're going to do it. One 22-year-old out there can make a decision that sets the world on fire. And that's what you may have had here. You may have had some 25-year-old Russian pilot who decides to knock this drone out of the sky just because he wants to do it, he's pissed off, he hates it. A Chinese pilot did there that was, 20 yeah, years ago. It was an American a, surveillance aircraft. There were a bunch of Americans on board, and they were forced to land in China. I forget the name of the island. And, Hainan. And that was a, yeah, Hainan, yeah. That was a big escalation. There was people seriously talking about how this could lead to war, and thankfully it didn't. The Chinese felt this is what happens when you push us too hard. But that was before 9-11. People remember, though... At that point, spring of 2001, the Americans, the Bush administration, were focused on China. Condi Rice comes into yes. as a national security advisor, and her focus is China. That's what they talk about. So, so 9-11 uh, prevented World War III? It's possible that I think that 9-11 prevented the focus on China and the escalation in the Pacific like we're seeing now. So what we're seeing now is the delayed onset 
of what may have occurred in the early part of this century, if not for 9-11 and the United States heading off to war in Afghanistan and in Iraq and then spending better part of two decades stomping around the greater Middle East, destroying things. When that happened, there was people on that plane and he flew directly into the plane and he was upheld. The pilot who died, who'd made that suicide attack, actually is like a national hero in China to this day. The Americans were repeating the actions of the last two centuries, basically, of the imperial, colonial, we're talking about nuclear war for. Matthew Ho has spent 12 years in the Marines, resigning in protests over the escalation of the war in Afghanistan. It's not uncommon for Russian aircraft to intercept U.S. aircraft over the Black Sea, and there have been other intercepts in recent weeks. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In national news, the fallout continues from twin bank failures last week that have shaken investors' confidence and exposed weakness in the U.S. banking system. On Sunday, the United States government took steps to stop the crisis from the historic failure of Silicon Valley Bank from spreading to more banks. SVB is the largest bank failure ever, affecting hundreds of billions of dollars in investments. And the ink was barely dry on the takeover of SVB when regulators announced the government had seized the New York-based Signature Bank with more than $100 billion in assets. It's the second largest bank failure in U.S. history and a sign of a fast-spreading economic contagion. White House Economic Advisor Cecilia Rouse says Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen was closely watching events. The most important thing that I will say here is that our Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary Yellen, is closely tracking uh, the developments with uh, the Silicon Valley Bank. Um, What I will emphasize as well is that our banking system is is in a fundamentally different place than it was, you know, a decade ago and that the reforms that were put in a place back then uh, really provide the kind of resilience that we'd like to see. So we have every faith in our regulators, um, and we can see that today, but uh, Secretary Yellen is closely tracking. So how concerned are you that we could see a ripple effect just throughout this specific sector? So two things. One, I'll refer you to the FDIC for how they intend to handle. We know they're insured up to 250 and how they'll handle those with uh, balances above that. And the second, I just want to reemphasize that we are in a fundamentally different position, uh, that, that you know, with the reforms of the global financial uh, crisis of 2007-2008, uh, we've put in place stress tests and other tools that our regulators have uh, to provide more resilience to our banking system. So, uh, you know, Secretary Yellen is watching this closely. Our regulators, we have every faith that they will be as well. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said Sunday that all Silicon Valley bank clients would be protected and able to access their money. Tax justice activist and investigator James Henry tells the news the vultures are out looking to pick the bones of the failed banks. There are already a lot of hedge funds like KKR and Citadel and other big players that are circling the assets of this bank and are going to probably try to buy them for much less than they're potentially worth if there's a recovery. But they are going to get help from the Fed to make that purchase. And the purchase is going to be at uh, the assets that they're valuing will be at par. So there's an implicit subsidy there. What does at par mean? At value. This bank, uh, SVB, had a big uh, portfolio of treasury bonds, which is underwater because of the rate increases. Apparently, they didn't hedge the the, uh, the portfolio. In fact, they reduced the amount of hedging they did. That was one of the problems. In other words, investing in other things that were te- destined to go up if 
one other thing went down so that you would at least not lose yeah, all your money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of uh, rate surprise with uh, the Federal Reserve this year. That's one of the factors. I don't think it was the only factor by any means in this bank's demise, and we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly they, they got stuck with, uh, you know, some assets that were not marked to, to market and took a big uh, hit when the, the, the Chairman Powell announced his rate increases uh, recently. Um, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, the CFO of SVB Securities uh, was the former chief administrative officer for Lehman Brothers. So uh, they, they didn't even have a credit risk officer. I mean, this is, this is bizarre. This is one of the most sophisticated communities in the country. It's fintech. They were banking to more than half of uh, startups in the country. They had some of the largest uh, tech companies uh, who were active in the so-called fintech financial technology space mm -hmm. uh, as clients, and yet in elementary uh, risk management, uh, they were deficient. People invested in something that was very poorly financed and lost their shirts. This is really the Achilles heel of capitalism, the financial services. We have had banking crises back to the early 17th century, but this is really on a much bigger global scale now today, and depositors can move money at the instantly, and there is all kinds of information being used to trade 24-7. These institutions are really uh, at the mercy of very sharp turnarounds in a few days. One of the reasons I think this federal intervention here was justified, even though they ended up bailing out a lot of really big depositors who were totally uninsured, was because there are a lot of ordinary tech workers who were facing losing companies they'd put five six years into raising money for and you're talking about maybe the company's worth two million bucks maybe succeeding it has 50 software engineers banking with this one silicon valley bank suddenly the funds that they had raised on tuesday were inaccessible <laughs> they were looking at layoffs it's really about the workers in silicon valley that were affected here and thousands of them were facing in all over the planet i mean who's supposed to find the justice well, now for they, these people most <laughs> people are libertarians you know by day and they would really like to go about their business and design the future and all that great stuff that's coming down the pike. And that's what their loves are. They say that there are no atheists in the trenches. Well, there are no uh, libertarians when there's a financial crisis. And all these people really right. now wanted the government to come in and save them. And uh, that's what has happened. And there's another whole story about Signature, which is the other. The second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history in the last week. The Signature in New York was a product of the crypto uh, games that they were playing with leading crypto players. But in the case of Silicon Valley, they had a huge number of companies that had parked deposits in such gargantuan amounts at this one bank. You have a company called Circle, which was a stablecoin provider, putting $3.3 billion in you know, a low-yield account at Silicon Valley Bank. Well, there's no explanation for that. My explanation for it is that what we're not seeing here is all the low interest rate loans that Silicon was giving to the executives of these companies and to the board members and the founders on the side. They live on the loans and they 
deduct the interest and they reduce taxes. <laughs> so this is a, a gigantic kind of, I suspect, if we really were able to get at the, the, the books, we would find a lot of the loans that Silicon Valley Bank has reported. And I've taken a look at their portfolio of loans. They had about a $74 billion of loans that they had made. They were the largest lender to the winery industry, more than a billion dollars. <laughs> I'm sure there were a few founders of these companies that are involved in the winery business. They had more than $10 billion of private banking loans, which is in this category of kind of sweetheart loans to the founders who put deposits at your bank. And then they had some other categories. So I, I could say that at least a third of those $74 billion were questionable loans that need to be audited carefully. The problem with the Federal Reserve action here may be, and their quick sale of this to third parties, is we never really get to the bottom of what was going on here because this will not be investigated. The depositors, only 2.3% of Silicon Valley's $175 billion of deposits were insured. So under normal circumstances, you would have all those depositors lose money. And that's the complaint that some folks like Ken Griffin of Citadel has been complaining that this was a moral hazard, <laughs> increasing moral hazard to the industry, that we were making sure that big depositors would be paid back was a, a great violation of natural law. If your listeners want to read more about this, they can find my article called So Silicon Valley Wants a Bailout? on dcreport.org, and that's just uh, out this week. So they can read, read in gory detail more about this. Economist and tax justice activist James Henry, another beleaguered bank, First Republic Bank, announced that it had bolstered its financial health by gaining access to funding from the Fed and J.P. Morgan Chase. Economist Jack Rasmus is based in California. He says the collapse was a result of arrogance. What happened was, as it's assets began to deflate. SVB attempted to issue some bonds. It quickly did, but because bond prices were falling, it took a loss on that. And the rating companies like Moody's said, uh-oh, you know, you made a big mistake here. And then they tried to issue some stock equity, and that quickly fell through. What's happening is very fast. That's what's different from 2008. People are moving their money bank runs electronically here, not standing outside the store, you know. The feds can't keep up with it, so they just jump in and seize the bank, which is what they did last Friday. Covered depositors, according to FDIC, 250000 but of course, they had to cover all the depositors' money. That means to me that FDIC is going to raise its 250000 probably to a half a million now going forward. They're going to crack down on the bank. Got overextended. Signature Bank in New York got its uh, problem wrapped up with the cryptos collapse. There's too much speculation, risky, high-risky stuff going on in the tech sector, kind of like cryptos will never contract or go higher, higher. Well, we see what happens long-term when all this free money sloshes around for a decade that the banks take all these high risks. What precipitated it, of course, the Fed has dirty hands here. The Fed ultimately is the cause of all this speculation going on, and then it's the cause of precipitating a crash here. I predicted all this in my 2017 book entitled Central Bankers at the End of Their Ropes, that this would happen. The Fed cannot raise rates above five, five and a half percent, I've been saying for some time, without precipitating a financial instability event like this, 
which is what's happening. The Fed uh, cannot continue raising rates. It has to choose between bank stability, which is its primary mission, and uh, inflation. We're not going to see uh, maybe one more rate increase of a quarter percent. And after that, if the banking instability continues, because this is not just SVB Bank, this is the whole tech bank sector. Mm -hmm. And it may spill over to other areas. Charles Schwab got a big warning here. It may spill over to them. Uh, They seem to recover a little bit. The financial system is fracturing here because of the rapid uh, rate hikes by the Fed. The Fed, I predict, will back off. It will not raise rates much higher. As I've said for a year, it can't raise them to 6% without precipitating a crisis. And that means that inflation is going to stay chronically high. And we saw that today with the CPI report. Rents, lodging, food, energy prices. That, leads, that usually leads to protesting in the streets and things like that when people have nowhere else to go, right? So we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, well, people go in the street and they protest and uh, You know, uh, the politicians and the elites just wait it out until they run out of steam uh, because there's nowhere else that people have to go. Uh, There's no party. There's no representation that they can go to push their, uh, you know, their their Mm -hmm. needs and their demands. We got a single party system with two wings. Influence. I mean, they actually tried to do things 100 years ago that they don't even try nowadays. No, they don't try because uh, both parties are, are... are corporate controlled with a stranglehold, yeah. you know. I mean, the Democrats, this isn't the Democrat Party of your grandfather, you know. This this yeah. is another animal t- taken over uh, by the DLC uh, under Clinton and uh, real corporate leaning here. They throw a few crumbs maybe uh, when things get real bad, uh, but they take it back, you know. And th- that's what's going on now, too. Austerity discussions between the Biden administration and McCarthy and others behind the scene and the cover of this debt nonsense right uh, they're they're going to cut big time here uh, as we go into a recession economist jack rasmus the fed late sunday announced an expansive emergency lending program that's intended to prevent a wave of bank runs that would threaten the stability of the banking system and the economy as a whole and in more national news the city of san francisco committee on reparations for black citizens handed down more than 100 recommendations to atone for centuries of slavery among the ideas a five million dollar payment to every eligible black adult the elimination of personal debt and tax burdens a guaranteed income of one hundred thousand dollars a year and a san francisco home for just one dollar closer to home in albany the new york state assembly and senate released their one house budget resolutions A surprise was a law that would end the use of fossil fuels in new construction across the state. It mainly would end the use of natural gas in new buildings, making New York the first state to enact a gas ban. New York City has already banned gas in new construction, and New York State has banned fracking, a controversial method of drilling for natural gas. The Northeast Region Director of Food and Water Watch is Alex Beecham. Both the Senate and the Assembly have signaled that they have versions of a ban on gas and a ban on all fossil fuels in new buildings in in their proposed budget. Governor Hochul, in her proposed budget earlier this year, had that as well. So New York's kind of unwieldy budget process, the way that works is all three of those parties will get together in a room somewhere and finalize a final budget. All of them are entering that negotiation saying, we want the gas ban. That, I think, is extraordinarily good news. It'd be the first state in the country to do this legislatively and only the second state in the country to enact a ban on fossil fuels in new buildings. So this is a historic move. We thought it should 
happen faster than what some in the legislature are proposing. But nevertheless, this is a big, big deal. It's not done yet, but it will be a, a real victory for the grassroots movement that's been fighting for it for years. What does that mean for gas in general? Would that phase out gas entirely by some point in the future? So we're only talking about new buildings, right? So mm-hmm. all this is doing is we're saying we cannot keep adding new buildings reliant on fossil fuels to the grid. We can't, and then specifically reliant on burning natural gas for heating to the mix, right? So this doesn't deal with existing buildings at all, and there's a whole fight to come on that. This is taking the first most basic necessary step to moving our buildings off fossil fuels all across the state. And it's something, by the way, that New York City has already done and, and kind of paved the way. We passed a law in New York City just over a year ago doing that and now are poised to win at the state level, it appears. Is it a message thing or will it? do you think the effect will be noticeable? Are we going to keep us closer to that elusive goal of a degree and a half warming? Or uh, is it more some just trying to get people's attention that there's public uh, support for this? Fully new buildings, but that's still a huge amount of emissions, right? So New York State builds something like 40,000 buildings every year. You're talking about something like a quarter of a million tons CO2 equivalent emissions annually. So this is a big, big deal from a, a climate perspective. You're right to say that it's only one part of the larger fight against climate change. And and frankly, it's only one part of the fight to decarbonize the state's buildings. But it's a huge, huge win and one that's been a long time coming. So it's a big deal in its own right. And of course, there's there's always more to fight for. What are they going to replace the gas, the energy from gas with? What does that get replaced with? What the state is saying here is that buildings have to be all electric, right? Meaning they have to electric heat, electric for, for everything throughout the building by a certain date, and then there's a fight to come about the dates. So that doesn't mean it's completely clean, right? It's only as clean as the electric grid. But even if we're using today's grid, the emission reductions are enormous. And of course, we have to decarbonize the grid as we move forward as well. So the hope, and, and I think the reality is that every year as we clean the grid, it, it lowers emissions even more. But even if it didn't get any better, right? Even if we used our grid today, which is really dirty and very reliant on natural gas, Even if you're just doing that, you're saving a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. The effect on fracking, I imagine it would be less of the demand for fracking if they're not adding more users. We at Food and Water Watch and many others were part of the campaign to ban fracking in New York State. But of course, we're more and more reliant on fracked gas from other states so that there's a certain hypocrisy to that. And this goes a a big part of the way to address moving to expand the natural gas network in our buildings has, has led to a lot of the growth in natural gas around the country. So yeah, this does cut off one of the many places that they're funneling all of that fracked gas that we're moving from Pennsylvania and, and other states around the country. Anything like that? We should go faster. You know, the governor and the assembly are trying to delay this until 2026. We're encouraging legislators to hold the line at 2025. That's what's in the Senate's proposal. And again, this matters, right? That's 40,000 buildings that we're going to hook up to natural gas for basically no reason. There's no reason to delay. We should go faster. Alex Beecham is Northeast Region Director of Food and Water Watch. And finally, during his campaign, New York City Mayor Eric Adams pledged 1% of the city's budget would go to fund the Parks Department. In fact, the budget has fallen short of that goal by more than $50 million. A report from the advocacy group New Yorkers for Parks says New York City parks receive significantly fewer dollars than parks departments in Los Angeles and Chicago. (music) 
And that's the news for Wednesday morning, March 15, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.